Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Friday, August 26th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the arc of history is long, but it bends to justice. You're going to be hearing some discussion of that in the spiel that we're playing today. This was first as uh, Eli Lake, who brings us the spiel. As he mentions, it was first said, as far as we know, by a 19th century Unitarian minister who was an abolitionist named Theodore Parker. And it was popularized by Martin Luther King. And then Obama said it. Once you have that constellation, I'm sure some people say Mark Twain Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill said it. They get attributed to all the good quotes. But once you have the endorsement of starting off as a phrase from abolitionists onto MLK, onto Barack Obama, you can't dispute it. Also, it makes us feel good. It does have the quality of being totally untrue. It, well, let me clarify that. It has the quality of being so often untrue that you can't say in general it's true. I looked at history, all of mankind, the history of mankind. And for many, many, many millennia, life did not improve one bit. The Paleolithic era, which began, I don't know, three and a quarter million years ago, into the Neolithic, into the Bronze Age, up to classical Greece. They have the life expectancy of all the people through all these eons and eons Life expectancy of the Paleolithic, and they know this from finding skeletons and dating them, 22 to 33 years. Neolithic, 20 to 33 years. Bronze Age, 26 years, right in the middle. Things were not improving. We don't know about subjectively if they thought things were improving, but just in terms of the material circumstance of people in the biggest way that you would judge something like justice, which is probably so abstract a concept, they wouldn't understand what it meant. You know, living and not getting eaten was their big concern. But there's just no evidence that all of that history, which is to say the the by far gigantic proportion of U.S. history, things were ever getting better for anyone. I mean, you could then zoom ahead eons, just go to the dark ages from the year, I don't know, 1100 to the year, I don't know, 16. 16- 
hundred something. Did things improve in terms of justice? Were people who were slaves freed, but then didn't go on to enslave anyone else? Were rights given? Were women told, you know what, don't die in childbirth so often. In fact, we're going to make some innovations to forestall that possibility. None of this happened. There was no bending towards justice. I would say probably up until the Enlightenment. I mean, there must have been periods where those who conquered, the conquered people said, we are more just than those we've conquered. In fact, I think this is a major explanation for why it is untrue that the arc of history bends towards justice. What happens? What is history? Who who writes history? The victors. But history is seen as a series of events that we look through, through the prism of those thinking about history. And those who are in a position to think about it are usually the conquerors. Those who were vanquished aren't around to think about it. And so we might just replace one set of mores with another and tell ourselves it's justice. One people who doesn't eat cows kill one people who don't eat pigs, and then the non-cow eaters, because they are the conquerors, tell themselves, ah, justice, our dietary concerns are now ruling the day as our gods would want them to. Now, sometime around the Enlightenment, things did start getting better. And I think it was because of the Enlightenment. Around the time an abolitionist would say this, he could look around the world, especially American abolitionists, and say, oh, England has banned the slave trade, other countries have. Maybe it's possible for our conception, our Christian religious conception of justice to take hold. But once you have a thesis that talks about the arc of history, and if you want to start in the Neolithic period, if you want to start uh, at zero BC, whatever your starting point is, if 90-something percent of history doesn't fit your theory about history, then your theory of history, well, it's not doing the facts much justice. On the show today, Eli Lake is here to spiel, essentially answering the question you've always asked, what's the point of misery? But first, we now bring you part two of our interview with Eve Fairbanks. Yesterday, Eve and I discussed the example and symbol of Nelson Mandela, how Mandela's example shaped reality and expectations for the post-apartheid era, and how later leadership in South Africa became corrupted. Today, we shall discuss what a once-ruling class does now, and we'll also talk about Eve's position as a white woman writing a book about a country that's only 13% white, Eve Fairbanks, author of The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning, up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. 
In The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning, Eve Fairbanks talks about what remains of a country where the promise of equality couldn't possibly be met. It's an almost mathematical truth that disappointment was baked into the experience of most South Africans. Many seem surprised or dismayed that they are disappointed, even as some improvements have occurred. I began today by asking Eve about the experiences of poor whites in South Africa. Many have retained land, many have retained much of their wealth, but they've also withdrawn from civic life. Others, I've heard, wanted out. So I asked Eve, has she come across the sentiment among whites who aren't rich that they would love to leave, but they can't afford to? It's funny. I get the question a lot, and it's it's a really important question, whether most people's lives have materially improved. Um, but I think that there's something else there too, that I was, I've grappled for years with how to kind of write about and how to show. And that is a a visceral reality to the sense of freedom that many black South Africans have now that is real. It is a real improvement and it contrasts with white South Africans. So I found that when I interviewed or even when I hung out with with Black South Africans that I knew, they wanted to walk with me everywhere. They wanted to show me their country. They wanted to go even to still white dominated places like certain types of malls. Um, they, They felt very possessive, not in a bad way, but like this is our place. There's a kind of really unhappy isolation that has occurred among white South Africans for a whole host of reasons that I explore in the book, but that despite the material fact that economically a lot of them are still doing way better than black South Africans, their kind of lived experience isn't necessarily that much happier. That's something that I found. And a lot, a lot, oddly, and we can talk about it, but I found that, that, uh, Liberal, self-identified liberal white South Africans were more anxious to leave the country than self-professed racists. I mean, there are white South Africans who will just, they love wearing Confederate flags. They'll be like, we totally believe apartheid was awesome and wish it came back. And, and it, it, they play the, con- the kind of country music that's all about, you know, <laughs> being like uh, poor and toting guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was the liberals who seemed the most unhappy. And that really fascinated me. Because they aren't getting credit as allies. Partly, yeah. They, some of them told me point blank that they really expected that they would get more credit after the the end of apartheid for being on the vanguard, for having had the idea, so to speak, for um, and that they would be more central. They did not understand demographics and, you know, did not understand that under apartheid, white allies were really needed um, in a way that they just weren't by the, the black majority afterward. There's an example in the book of a white politician who was left wing. And this was hard to be under apartheid. You were persecuted. It was a difficult stance to take and courageous. And he believed that he was best friends with this very high level black anti-apartheid fighter who later became South Africa's second president. And he imagined a future after segregation ended where he and this black politician would be emailing each other night and day and 
and kind of coming up together, huddling together one-on-one with to come up with all the policies for how the country should go. And the Black politician just forgot about him. And as it was told to me by multiple people who knew him, he drank himself to death. He was so depressed to be sidelined like that. There's a part of the book where many white South Africans look back at their childhoods as idyllic. And this could be psychological, but also that's how the world was constructed. So there'd be, you know, sites of actual human rights violations that were boarded up and they never knew about it. You know, one guy would bike past one of these places and it didn't bother him because the horrors of their past were kept for him. And I, of course, as an American, had to think about the analogy with the United States. Maybe all these people who are looking back fondly at the uh, idyllic leave it to beaver periods or whatever, maybe even later in the 70s and 80s, were only doing so at the expense of uh, truth and reality being kept from them. Then again, America in the 70s and 80s wasn't nearly as bad as the United States. And it is also very different. Sure, the demographics project that America will soon become a minority majority, a majority minority country, but it's very different from the demographics of South Africa. So did you think about that as American, what the white people were saying to you about the idealism of their pasts? I did. I mean, I think that there are types of um, white idealizing of the past that can be caricatured here. Um, there's a phenomenon in South Africa that I think is really relevant here, which is um, fixate, you know, a, a lot of white South Africans will fixate on the most silly or extremist or clearly irrational members of their tribe in order to be like, well, thank God, you know, I don't have any of those um, cognitive dissonances or problems. I, I I thought some, so there are figures in the book who tell me honestly that they thought that South Africa was like 70 to 90% white when they were young. And it was one of these things, I mean, something that I try to consider a lot in my writing is like, what, how much our psychologies can really take facts on board. And so they said, yes, we learned in school the true demographics, but what we saw around us in this segregated system made it seem different. And I thought, you know, I grew up in D.C. Remind me where you're from. Where'd you grow up? New York. Okay. You know, D.C., I think, was more segregated. It still is. But in the 90s, there were parts of the city that even growing up in Adams Morgan, which is considered a more integrated neighborhood, like I was never taken across the river. I then in high school never went there myself. Then when I moved back to D.C. from college, there were this whole cohort of writers, young young kind of bloggers and writers who'd come from other places who had settled in D.C., a lot of these kind of the nation and American progress types. And I used to take them on like safaris to Virginia and they would be like, what the f like where where even are we and i would be like we're in we're not only in america like we're in your nation we're like 40 minutes from your house and so i think that you know to me south africa is a, a fascinating country in its own right it's been a country that's been really good to me i've loved living there um my partner's south african but also it really does provide in a kind of very almost visual, extreme, very clear image of some types of dynamics that are more murky in the U.S. And that's, I think it's really worth looking at that, including, you know, how little a lot of people, a lot of Americans still know about 
their actual country. That's something that was that became much more clear to a lot of South Africans um, after the end of apartheid because of how rapidly this sort of apple cart was just overturned. And we're in a much slower process and a different process, but but one that has strong parallels. Is there another country that is a model or did it better? I mean, I think of Rhodesia slash Zimbabwe, who seems disastrous. Robert Mugabe, semi-autocratic rule, um, not material improvement for the lives of most people. That's right next door. That seems an obvious comparison. Do people in South Africa say, oh, it would have been better if we had gone like country X? They do. I will say South Africa's quite unique. It had a very American style, 19th century sort of move of its many of its white settlers to declare independence from the British Empire and re-sort re of make themselves as like indigenous in their minds. Like they are Africans. That's literally what the word Afrikaner means. And that meant that it didn't have as rapid an outflow of its colonialist class as, say, Kenya did upon liberation because those people no longer had Dutch passports. They were local. So it has very, very, very different dynamics. There's a lot of comparisons between South Africa and Zimbabwe. In fact, sometimes people here will be like, oh my gosh, like, what do you think about how South Africa stole all the land from white farmers and, and took it back? And I was like, no, you're thinking about Zimbabwe, <laughs> like it's a different country. But um, South Africa is very, very distinctive and they see themselves that way and they are so kind of sui generis. They compare themselves a little bit to Malaysia in terms of the Chinese minority and dealing with that. That would maybe be the closest. What about Israel? I mean, there is a country where the word apartheid has been applied. Lessons of South Africa that could or shouldn't be applied to Israel. Yeah, obviously, that's a that's a murky waters in which to wade. I had a South African boyfriend at one time, not right now, who was a big admirer of Israel because he was an engineer and he loved the dry land farming and the ingenuity and this whole vibe that it looked like Tel Aviv had. And he did work in Nairobi and the Israelis do a lot of projects with the Kenyans, blah, blah, blah. And not a left-wing person in particular. And we went, I did a reporting trip to Israel and I've been there a few times and I took him and he, he was like, what is a sheep? a lot of the time uh, there. And he said, apartheid was a specific regime. To me, it, it was specific to South Africa. However, I have to say, this feels exactly like my, it feels so much like my apartheid youth. And I did not want to have that experience here, but it's undeniable. It is so similar. So like, I don't have a comment on that, but I was really struck by that. Um, that there is a lot of overlap. The other thing I'll say is um, I have distant relatives who, very distant, who are Israeli. Um, but I kept coming over and over to the, the conclusion that you cannot predict what people will do after a certain type of change by what they say they'll do before it or by how they, or by how angry they sound, if that makes sense. I mean, Certainly a lot of the rhetoric in South Africa, even there were these songs that that black South Africans would sing, anti-apartheid songs in the 80s that were quite brutal. They would be like, kill the kill the farmer, kill the settler. 
bring me my machine gun. And there was a level of violence. I mean, South Africa was the most violent country on earth that was not technically in a state of war in the early 90s. And the degree to which that kind of melted away and that kind of wish for vengeance really melted once tables were turned, I sometimes feel like I want to go to Israel and be like, look, I can't make any promises to anybody, but but like this, the terror that the desire for vengeance will persist forever. Like, look at this, look at this other country and see these, you know, these fascinating kind of shifts that happened in that. So I, you know, I can't compliment you enough for the job that you've done and it's so well observed, but you are a white person, a white American who is engaging in an ethnography of black people, I mean, to some extent. I get the sense that in South Africa, this would be more acceptable, but was there, were you worried about American publishers being uh, hesitant to let you engage full-throatedly in that project? Hmm. No, I wasn't worried. I I got a lot of advice from American publishers and literati and whatever. It wasn't the only advice I got, but to only write about white people. And I think that was, that had two elements. One was almost like, that's what you sh- should contain yourself to. But also there is a fascination about white in white people in this type of a situation of the loss of power that that really outstripped some people's interest in what should be equally or even more interesting, which is how black South Africans are are taking this on and faring. But and I just realized at a certain point I couldn't do that. I couldn't write a book about white people. It would not be um there are no white South Africans without black South Africans. And and I think black South Africans would say vice versa. There's a famous book called, it's written by a South African of color. Like what if, what if there were no white South Africans? And it was the, the upshot is like the sort of whole psychology of the country and how everyone understands their identity. It doesn't work that way. It's quite reflective and, and kind of in conversation. And you can have a white person in South Africa who interacts with zero black people and yet their whole sense of who they are and where they stand will be based on the black people that are in their imagination. So you have to do both. So I felt like I really, if I was going to look at the country, I had no no choice in that. Oh, I, I, I totally agree with you. And you do it successfully. I just am noticing the who gets to tell the stories uh, argument in the United States, at least, and I wondered if it was if you pushed up against it. So your answer is some people who are trying to give you good advice were nodding towards that idea, but you knew you couldn't and you didn't. And so far, only good things have happened. Am I getting that about right? <laughs> <laughs> no, not only, only good things. Good I mean, thing. you know, the only good things. No, I mean, what I'm going to say is maybe not that the sexiest, but I did. I got way less. Uh, kind of pushback from my publisher than kind of narrators of cancel culture would have had me believe. The night before the book was published, I had sweat-inducing, terrifying nightmares of like Twitter cancellation. And I realized that I was having those in part because of the intensity of the warnings. Like this is what you're going to experience because now, you know, everyone's so snowflakey. 
I did not get a lot of pushback. No, and maybe that's because it's a foreign country and it felt you know won't slip through the radar. Um, I will say, Black American readers that I both had as sensitivity readers that I hired, and also that have written me and said, "Yo, I read this. Yeah, I, I read this book." Like they seem, oh, as a group, less anxious about this kind of question than white liberals. The name of the book is The Inheritors, An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning. The author and our guest has been Eve Fairbanks. Eve, thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Eli Lake is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering national security and foreign policy. He was the senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and covered intelligence for the Washington Times, New York Sun, and UPI. That's his one life. Here now, a good glimpse into his other life, his passion, his other persona. It is a podcast called The Reeducation. Officially, Its description says Eli challenges common narratives the mainstream media and others push from comedy to collusion and disinformation to disarray. I would cut through that a little bit and say I've been enjoying the show greatly. And I would say that Eli Lake's ethos is don't be afraid to say it. And so he's not. Neither are we. Eli Lake with the spiel. Imagine going back in time, say 100 years, to a typical family farm. There would be no air conditioning. There would be no refrigeration. Every year at the harvest, the family would have to toil for days to get their crop into cans or to the market, or their produce would spoil. No indoor plumbing, just a putrid outhouse. If the family was lucky, there may be a radio. The family would be at risk catching any number of diseases, from polio to tuberculosis. If a son or the father had served in World War I and was lucky enough to return, there would be a very good chance that he would be missing a limb or an eye. The children would be lucky to finish high school. The mother would have no recourse if she was abused in her marriage except to leave with no chance for support for her husband and no right to see her children. And if the family was black, they would be second-class citizens, at best, and at risk of state-sponsored terror from the Ku Klux Klan. Now imagine explaining to that family how it was so unfair that your kids had to go to class for a year on their computers during the latest pandemic. It took nearly an entire year for virologists and medical researchers to develop a vaccine for a disease the world had just discovered. And then we learned that the vaccine only prevented death and severe illness you could still catch flu-like symptoms. Instead of visiting friends and family far away, we could only connect to them with video calls. And the government kept telling us to get boosters for our vaccines. The farmers from 1922 would ask if we could take them with us back to the future, as it were. Now, this is a version of an argument popularized in the last few years by Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. In his 2018 book, He makes the case that the revolution in thinking that occurred during the Enlightenment in politics, science, and how we know what is true, epistemology, 
has made the world a far more prosperous and free place than at any other point in human history. Here is Pinker explaining his thesis on Bill Maher's program four years ago. Well, we'll we can begin with life itself. Through most of human history, life expectancy at birth, we're around 30. Uh, Now it's 71 worldwide and 80 in the more developed parts of the world. Um, Education, uh, through most of human history, the vast majority of people were illiterate. Now 90% of people under 25 in the world can read, read and write. Now Pinker uses a bit of a cheat code. A modern crisis usually doesn't seem so bad if you take a long historical view. Consider Vladimir Putin. I think any rational observer would understand that the Russian leader is a terrible autocrat. He jails political opponents, even has some of them murdered abroad. He just invaded Ukraine on no real good reason and flimsiest and most dishonest of pretexts. And he has snuffed out most of what remains of Russia's independent media. And that's just really scratching the surface. And yet, Vladimir Putin is probably one of the most humane leaders in Russian history if you compare him to, say, Vlad the Impaler or most of the Romanov czars. Putin stands out today because we have far higher standards for world leaders than we did even 100 years ago. What's more, just because there are many ways things are better today for some people, it doesn't mean that there are not real problems. American adolescence is in crisis. Within the past decade, the teen suicide rate has surged by nearly 40%, and close to one in five high school students reported they'd seriously considered killing themselves. Everybody's miserable, and everybody's more miserable when they think that everybody's having a great time. But everybody's miserable because they're looking at everybody be miserable, looking like they're having fun. We just heard from a clip of a New York Times video that explains the frightening rise of teen suicides in America in the last two decades. And it's only gotten worse since the lockdowns and isolation of the pandemic. Suicides are a subset of what are now called deaths of despair. More and more Americans today are getting addicted to lethal drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamines. We are living through a real mental health crisis as the spate of recent mass shootings attest. And it's not just the worst case scenarios of premature death. More and more Americans are obese, eating processed, sugar-rich foods that will lop off years from their lives. A Pew survey from February found that 70% of Americans believe that young adults today will have a more difficult time paying for college, saving for the future, or buying a home than their parents did. Fewer Americans are getting married. Now, in a vacuum, these trends undermine a core assumption of American life in the last 100 years, that everything will just keep getting better. We may have actually peaked. That's the thing. And now we're in decline. Here's the economic historian Robert J. Gordon from 2016 explaining a thesis of his groundbreaking book from that year. So when we compare... Uh, technological change over the last 30 or 40 years. Yes, we've had the digital revolution, um, and we've had a complete change in the way offices work from typewriters through uh, flat screens and word processing programs. Um, But they've affected a narrower span of life. If we walked into today's kitchen, uh, it's very familiar to those who were there in 1950. Uh, There's not been much of a change at all except for the invention of the microwave oven. Uh, so it's the the dimension, the breadth of the change that was so much greater back before 1970. 
Gordon proposes that the real economic miracle for America has already happened. Between 1870 and 1970, we built the electric grid. The modern bathroom was invented with the advent of indoor plumbing. Americans invented and mass-produced automobiles and planes. This says nothing of the telephone. Since then, the invention of personal computers, the internet, word processing, and of course smartphones have further revolutionized our society, but those changes have not had the same massive impact on everyday life as the miraculous innovations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the progress was not limited to just economics. American culture exploded in the 20th century. While the 19th century produced wonderful novelists and poets, the 20th century gave us jazz, musicals, cinema, not to mention the NFL and the NBA. In 1870, only a handful of elites went to college. By 1970, universities were an engine of upward social mobility for the entire country. Finally, consider the expansion of rights in the same 100-year period. In 1870, women could not vote, and the right of black American men to vote was temporary. After the North abandoned Reconstruction, Southern states imposed poll taxes and other tests designed to steal the voting rights of former slaves. New factory workers teeming into the cities did not have a right to organize unions. By 1970, federal legislation had remedied most of these problems. Now, this progress did not unfold in a straight line. There were, you know, dips and jumps and so forth. But the fact that there was progress is itself undeniable if you look at that 100-year period. This is why so many Americans have traditionally held a faith that things would get better despite the setbacks of the present moment. It is the view that history, and particularly American history, has a direction and a positive one at that. The Union may not be perfect, but we endeavor over generations to perfect the Union. A 19th century abolitionist minister named Theodore Parker put it like this, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. Martin Luther King Jr. would echo that sentiment in a famous 1967 speech. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, it's a comforting thought, but it really depends on how long the arc of history actually is. Because if it's thousands or millions of years, then the moral universe really looks more like a circle. This idea is captured in the philosophy of the 18th century Neapolitan Giambattista Vico. Vico argued that the history of human society was guided by a divine providence found in the minds of people, but inspired by God. So he believed that there were phases of history and a kind of overall direction to it. But at the same time, he allowed that human society, like the life cycle of humans themselves, went through various stages of growth and then decay. Is America now in decay? Sometimes it seems that way. In our burst of creative freedom, we have invented new ways to make ourselves more miserable. We've invented ever-powerful drugs that addict and enslave us. We have invented smartphones that show us streams of photos and videos of people living better lives than we do, making us all the more jealous. We've invented simulated meta-worlds that keep us apart from the physical world and the real people within it. How do we find happiness when so much of our technology today is designed to stoke our fears and enmities? Happiness requires a sense, first and foremost, that we are part of something bigger 
much bigger than our present. We are links in a chain. And in that understanding, we focus on both the possibilities of the future and the miseries of the past. It gives us perspective, but more important, it gives us meaning. Sometimes I can't help but think the arc of the moral universe is so long that we will have to endure another dark age until we stumble upon the next enlightenment. And that's it for today's show. The Gist's assistant producer, Corey Warren, knows that the bark of history woofs towards squirrels. The Gist senior producer, Joel Patterson, believes that the narc of history class is the guy who asked, wait, you didn't assign homework? Michelle Pasca, CEO of Peachfish Production, believes that Noah's arc of history bends towards hippos. Should have spread them out, guy. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Gperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.